had an interesting moment this morning, a moment that is the, the, the nightmare of every minister. I lost my sermon. <laughs> it was an interesting 45 minutes of my life. <laughs> and I came to peace with that. And I decided I could preach it anyway. But I did find it. <laughs> Praise whatever. <laughs> but I'm a little bit in an improvising mood from this crisis, so who knows? This man, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., has become a legend in our world. He's in a way almost like one of the holiday stories. We had a story of this man. A young man just out of seminary. He was a Baptist, a Northern Baptist, which is an interesting denomination. Was called to a church in Montgomery, Alabama, the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. If you go to Montgomery, you can visit the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and you can, uh, it's a lovely place. Their basement reminds me of the basement of our own church, has that same feel. You can go upstairs, you can stand in the pulpit where he preached if you want. So it's a, it's a great place to visit. King was 26 years old at the time that his civil rights career began. He was 26 years old. He was a seminary graduate. He was not a fundamentalist in his views. He was really a religious liberal. At least I would uh, support that. He was steeped in the 20th century cutting edge theology of Paul Tillich, who really is an amazing theologian that I encourage everyone to find out more about. So when King was a brand new minister and he was 26 years old, a woman named Rosa Parks made this decision not to accept the second class status on the bus anymore and she refused to give up her seat and move to the back of the bus. And she was arrested. And this was no surprise because people had done this before and they had gotten arrested. This particular time, the African American community made a decision in this case, a, a very bold decision. They decided to boycott the bus company. They decided to try it for one day and see what would happen. So they put out the word, nobody get on the bus tomorrow. As long as Rosa Parks is in jail, we're not getting on the bus. And until there is equality on the buses, we're, we're gonna have this protest. They decided to do it for one day. And nobody knew if it was really going to work very well, but the fact is that almost nobody got on the buses that day. It was working. So then they had another meeting to decide what to do, and they decided they would continue the bus boycott and see what happens. They needed a leader. Now you had a movement and an organization, and they needed a leader, and they asked this young Baptist minister, Martin Luther King, who was 26 years old, and they asked him, would he be the leader? 
And King writes that he did not feel immediately that he should do that. He didn't think necessarily that he was the one to take on this mantle of leadership, but as you know, he did. And so they continued the bus boycott, and it continued for days and weeks and months. And they held firm. And they did all kinds of community organizing. One of the things they did was to organize carpools. Well, it makes a lot of sense to organize carpools. The city of Montgomery passed a law against carpooling. This is the kind of struggle that was going on. King was arrested on completely ridiculous trumped-up charges and went to jail. They did all kinds of things, and at the height of the tension, his house, his family's house, was bombed. They exploded a bomb on his porch. You can go down to Montgomery. You can stand on that porch if you want to. And the people were inflamed, and they gathered in the street outside King's house. And they were angry, and King told them, we need to be nonviolent. We can't get into a retaliatory war here. It, it will, we will lose all our credibility. And we'll be just like everybody else. So we've, we've just got to, we're all okay. King's family was not injured. He said, we're all okay. We're going to be fine. So just take a deep breath and go on home and people dispersed that night. The King family got threatening phone calls on a daily basis, and you can imagine the rhetoric in those calls. I mean, that's not hard to do, the way they were addressed in those threats. But they held on to that boycott, and you all know about this, that after 381 days, 381 days of boycotting that bus company, they won. And the laws were changed. And everyone could ride equally on the bus system in Montgomery, Alabama. But of course, it wasn't simply the bus system in Montgomery, Alabama. And at this point, King now had become a nationally known leader because of this bus boycott that had been wildly successful and extremely difficult, too. And the discipline they had had and the dedication they had to nonviolence, even in extreme provocation. There were more campaigns and more marches. You probably know about the Selma March, Linda went down to Selma for the 50th anniversary of the Selma March. It was a march from Selma to Montgomery. Part of it was provoked by the uh, death of a young man, Jimmy Lee Jackson, who had been beaten up and killed as a result of trying to sit in a lunch counter. And so King organized this march from Selma to Montgomery, and there was a day called Bloody Sunday when they tried to cross the bridge and they were beaten severely 
and they did not resist. John Lewis, who is in the news this weekend, was almost beaten to death on that bridge. And yet he recovered and became a great civil rights leader in this country. James Reeb, a Unitarian minister, was beaten to death walking down a street in Selma outside a restaurant. They were, three of them were attacked and James Reeb died as a result of that beating. There's a UU church named after him in Madison, Wisconsin. Viola Liuso, a Unitarian lay volunteer, was shot to death in a car uh, apparently was shot because she was in the same car with an African-American man. And so in the, this time, that would be a trigger to think that something was wrong with her. And as a matter of fact, the FBI went on a smear campaign against Viola Liuso to try to paint her as some kind of person with loose morals because she was in a car with an African-American man driving someone to the airport. So it was a long struggle. And so King, as you know, continues to lead nonviolent protests all over the South and eventually in the North as well. And as this continues, King starts to become regarded as a prophet as, a, as a, a, a leader of special qualities. He's like uh, the comparison to Moses is starting to come up. He's leading the people to freedom out of slavery in the large sense. And uh, this is why in African-American churches, the story of the exodus from Egypt is, I think, much more important than that story is often in predominantly white churches because that story really resonates. So King continues to march and speak and there's dialogue with politicians until finally in 1963 the Civil Rights Act is passed by Congress and signed by Lyndon Johnson. An enormous victory for civil rights and followed by the Voting Rights Act in 1964 which set up the, the uh, legality that everyone in the South could vote and put some real strict guidelines on that to make sure it would happen. A major victory for civil rights and voting rights. And as King continues to march, he's still a young man, he turns his attention to economic justice, to jobs, saying that it's not just the right to vote, but it's the right to have a decent life, that every person should be part of that circle of decency. Everyone should be able to have a, a decent world to live in with with schools and jobs and health care. And then he also turned his uh, eye towards the war in Vietnam and denounced the war in Vietnam and said that we had no quarrel 
with those people and that we had no reason to be involved in this mass violence from his point of view. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964 for his leadership of the nonviolent movement. And then in 1968, while he was in Memphis to support a strike by sanitation workers, he was shot to death on the balcony of a Memphis hotel. And it just shook American society to the core. And this is one of my earliest memories of being socially conscious uh, was when King was shot. And I'm from Chicago, there were riots in Chicago. There were riots all over uh, the United States. It was a moment of enormous tragedy. Martin Luther King was 39 years old. He was 39 years old when he was shot. So how are we doing? a half a century after these enormous accomplishments. How are we doing? There's a woman named Michelle Alexander who wrote a book called The New Jim Crow. Many of us have studied this book and a bunch of us went to hear her speak, as a matter of fact. It's a wonderful, intelligent book and she argues that if you look at American history, Every advance in the direction of equality and justice is followed by a backlash of energy in the other direction. This is part of her argument. So every time rights expand and we move closer to justice and we make some major step, there will be an energy to try to go back the other way. And she said, you can look at American history and you can see how that works. Like, for example, we read Abraham Lincoln's words this morning. After the freeing of the slaves and the winning of the war and the movement of Reconstruction to have um, a culture of equality in the South and all over the United States, there was a rebellion against that. And there was a whole movement, particularly in the South, called Jim Crow. And what Jim Crow was is just a way to systematically discriminate against African Americans and that's woven into the culture and drinking fountains and voting polls and voting tests and picking up people for uh, standing on a street corner and taking putting and then you take you arrest the people on the street corner for loitering, then you put them in jail, and then corporations that are nearby get to take those workers out of jail and have them work for them all day long. That's what the chain gang is about. Now you're back where you were before the Civil War. So you see how there was this, and so there's a whole system of Jim Crow that historians say really that period reaches its end with Martin Luther King's movement and the signing of the Civil Rights Bill and the Voting Rights Bill in 63 and 64. So that's sort of the end of that backlash. So this, now we have another enormous jump forward with King's movement and the signing of these two tremendously important bills. And then Michelle Alexander argues, and I'm really persuaded by her, that in the 80s another backlash comes. And what happens in the 80s is a movement for law and order. 
And what this movement says, it says a couple of things. One of the things it says is that the civil rights workers are really violent people. And that comes out of the riots after King's assassination. They start to portray the civil rights movement as a violent movement. That's one thing that happens. And the other thing that happens is there's something called the drug wars where they decide to really take a hard line on drug use in the United States and then we get this massive buildup of prisons and we get all these tough laws to throw all the drug uh, users and sellers of any type into prisons and give them long sentences that they cannot get out of very quick. And here's what happens with those drug laws. They are not enforced equally. They're not enforced equally. So African-American neighborhoods get targeted for the enforcement of the drug laws. The police departments get militarized and the jails fill up and the people who build the jails make profits and by some magical connection, it just so happens that the people and the legislators keep passing tougher crime bills so that there can be more people to put in the jails. The problem, one of the many problems with this, one of them is that that doesn't help drug use very much at all. And the other problem is that it was not enforced equally. Because, and I'm not gonna have anybody raise their hand or stand up, The predominantly white colleges are full of kids in dorm rooms smoking pot every night of the week. But nobody busts into that campus with a tank and machine guns to load them all up and give them high prison sentences. Nobody does that. They're the privileged people. But people do go into the African-American neighborhoods with machine guns and tanks and arrest a whole bunch of people and put them in prison and I hate to tell you this, but this is what happened. I wish I did not have to say this. This is what happened and prisons went, prison population went from something like three, 300,000 in the United States to over two million. And that's called mass incarceration. So that's the backlash against the civil rights movement. At least Michelle Alexander says that and I, I don't know how to argue with that at all. I think she's absolutely right. And right now in this country, there's a movement going on to reform these laws. Prison reform is an issue in this country, and I urge you to get behind that issue. That is something. We're not going to have any peace until there's equality in the way these laws are administered. The election of Barack Obama in 2008 was a tremendous, another great breakthrough for the cause of equal rights that has been acknowledged by both Republicans and Democrats alike. What a, what a big breakthrough this was. And many people said that once Barack Obama was elected that we no longer had a race problem in the United States. That that was the solution to it. Or if not just the election of Barack Obama, the combination of Barack Obama, Michael Jordan, and Oprah was conclusive proof that there was no longer a race problem in the United States. But what we see more clearly now is that the Obama era really produced its own backlash. And I think we can 
figure that out. It actually started on his inauguration day years ago. So I'm not trying to tell you how you should view your own politics, but there has been a backlash there. I'm trying to look at this from a historical point of view. And one way to describe the present moment is that we are still feeling that backlash. And that at this moment, the movement for justice and equality is actually in retrograde. We're in retrograde right now. That's where we are. Not in every single dimension, but overall, we're in retrograde. I'm not saying that everyone who voted for the new president is a racist or anything like that. I don't think that's true. But it is true that a racist and white supremacist element has attached itself to this new president. And I must say he has done precious little to disown them, which troubles me. Now, if we are to be followers of Dr. King's way of life, we will have to do more than celebrate his birthday, even though it's a lot of fun to celebrate his birthday, and I love it. And I'm going to the lunch, and I'm going to the march, and I'm going to the service, and I love to do those things, but I also know that that isn't going to fix the problem. It may help us stay a little bit inspired. King was out in the streets. He wasn't just traveling around the world picking up prizes. Our former minister, Clinton Lee Scott, wrote these words that are in our hymn book. He wrote, always it is easier to pay homage to the prophet than to heed the direction of their vision. It's, it's easy to praise Dr. King, and he should be praised, but it's not easy to follow his vision. That's not an easy road. That's challenging. We have to put ourselves on the line. We have to take some risks to do that. Right now, I believe that Dr. King would be unutterably disturbed with the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. Where that bill that was built on the blood and sweat and sometimes the deaths of marchers now has had the teeth taken out of it. It's really not that strong piece of legislation that they celebrated in 1964. I think it would rip his heart out to know that that bill has been gutted. I think King would be deeply disturbed by the current nominee to become Attorney General in the United States. Because that man, even though he may be a wonderful guy, as some say he is, is part of the Jim Crow world. It's not a hidden thing. That's the mental space he lives in, is the old Jim Crow. And shows no evidence of supporting voting rights, and whose record is not one of protecting the rights of African Americans or Latinos or Muslims or LGBTQ folk or any other group whose rights are threatened. And boy, it's always great to say, what would Martin Luther King do? Lord have mercy. When this candidate was up for a position as a federal judge in 1986, 
Coretta Scott King wrote a letter to the Judiciary Committee, which was never presented to the members of the committee and was never made public. She wrote a nine-page letter imploring them not to appoint him to be a federal judge. You can get the letter online, and I encourage you to do that. I'll give you one sentence from her letter. It says, the irony of Mr. Sessions' nomination is that if confirmed, this would be to a federal judge, if confirmed, he will be given a life tenure for doing with a federal prosecution what the local sheriffs did 20 years ago with clubs and cattle prods. That's the letter Coretta Scott King wrote. Her letter did not become public until last week. The committee, however, at that time did have the wisdom to deny him a judgeship. May our leaders have as much wisdom now. I don't say that out of any animosity to him. King did not want vengeance or revenge against anyone who opposed him and said that we need to love those who oppose us and that's part of the hard part. That's part of what's hard. He did not say that they would go to hell. What a great temptation for a Christian preacher. That's like low-hanging fruit. <laughs> Y'all are going to hell. How could he possibly have resisted that? He never said they were going to hell. He didn't think that way. He said they're going to be transformed eventually. If we continue loving and being nonviolent, they're all going to change their minds. They're not going to go to hell. They're going to go to a place of better understanding. How did he resist that? You tell me. I hope, too, that the current wave of leaders caught up in division and selfishness and often lack of democratic values will at some point see the light. But until they do, we have to be ready to oppose actions that we think are wrong and to do it through nonviolent means. Someday they too will see the light or at least give up the way of inequality and injustice. So we hope. How long will it take for that to happen? King got answered that questions on the steps of the Capitol in Montgomery. He said, I know you are asking today how long will it take? I come to say to you this afternoon that however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long because truth pressed to earth will rise again. How long? Not long, because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long, because you still reap what you sow. How long? Not long, 
because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. These are the words of a mature spiritual leader in the grip of a deep calling and a profound faith. We may not share his theology, but that is really not the crucial issue. One can embrace this vision from any religious point of view or any non-religious point of view. What King believed in above all is the power of love. Love for every single person, black, white, American, Vietnamese, gay or straight. And for those of you who may not know, one of the people in King's inner circle was a gay man named Bayard Rustin. Find out more about Bayard Rustin. He was the person who organized the march where King gave his I Have a Dream speech. King was for everyone. He saw the vision and he was determined to serve the law of love. He believed that the universe supported that desire but that it would take our effort and our commitment to help bend the moral arc of justice. We can't just buy a ticket to a stadium and say, let's watch the moral arc bend. We have to be out there pushing the moral arc. And that's how this bending happens. So I ask us today, let us honor this profound prophet, not just with songs, those songs are lovely, but with our efforts to stand for love, even in a troubled time like we are in right now. In Dr. Martin Luther King's words, yes, I am personally the victim of deferred dreams, of blasted hopes, but in spite of that, I close today by saying, I still have a dream, because you know you can't give up on life. If you lose hope, somehow you lose that vitality that keeps life moving. You lose that courage to be that quality that helps you go on in spite of all. And so today, I still have a dream. Now that dream belongs to us, to proclaim, to march for, to carry out until it's complete. May we answer the call.